Yo, this is the Ancient Texan uh, coming to you from Maryland and hi out there to all you fellow journeyer, journeyers through this world that has COVID right now and racism and a bunch of other stuff. Notice that there's about 15% of my audience now comes from uh, Ireland, still moving up. Of course, I'm curious. Uh, you know who you are. There's some smaller crowds from Canada and Great Britain, South Africa. Ireland, though, seems to be where at least a few people are tuning in, and I'm glad to have you. This week, um, this Sunday, we're going to look at another chapter from When Things Fall Apart by Pima Kadron, chapter 11. And I don't know how much this is going to make sense to you that have just now getting on the wagon. You might want to go back and hear some other sessions. Maybe you'll make sense to you like it is. This is kind of a study on some principles of um, Buddha, Buddhism, and I and I kind of like it. I I think this suits me uh, quite well. Matches my philosophy of life. This chapter is on non-aggression and the four maras. And forgive me if I don't pronounce a lot of words right. I wasn't taught phonetics in school. I was part of an experiment that failed. Anyway, all the maras point the way to being completely awake and alive by letting go. By letting ourselves die moment after moment. At the end of each out breath. When we wake up, we can fully live fully without seeking pleasure and avoiding pain, without recreating ourselves when we fall apart. And it's followed up with, that's the introduction paragraph. On the night on which he was to attain enlightenment, the Buddha sat under a tree. When he was sitting there, he was attacked by the forces of Mara. The story goes that they shot arrows, they shot swords and arrows at him, and that their weapons turned into flowers. But what does this story mean? My understanding of it is that we habitually regard as obstacles are not really our enemies, but rather our friends. When we call obstacles are really the way the world and our entire experience teach us where we've we've struck. What may appear to be an arrow or a sword we can actually experience as a flower. Whether we experience what happens to us as obstacle or enemy or as a teacher and a friend, depends entirely on our perception of reality. It depends on our relationship with ourselves. 
there's the way I look at this there's what happens to you on the outside and what the physical world or even the emotional world that's outside of yourself and other people there's the events that happen the swords that come at you arrows and then there's how you deal with them internally um, how do you deal with your poverty like a Mandela that got thrown into prison for 20 some odd years um, and then came out and had grown enough um, as a person that he led became the ruler of South Africa Gandhi I mean all the really great people even Buddha here in this story is taking um, what happens to him and turning it into a flower the teaching tell us that obstacles occur at the outer level and at the inner level in this context the outer level is the sense that something or someone has harmed us interfering with the harmony and peace we thought was ours some rascal has ruined it all this particular sense of obstacle occurs in relationships and in many other situations. We feel disappointed, harmed, confused, and attacked in a variety of ways. People have felt this way from the beginning of time. This is life. Stuff happens. As some people say, shit happens, and you have to deal with it. Now you can choose you know, to be a victim or you can learn from the stumbles in life. As for the inner level of obstacle, perhaps nothing ever really attacks us except our own confusion. Perhaps there is no solid obstacle except our own need to protect ourselves from being touched. Maybe the only enemy is that we don't like the way reality is now and therefore wish it would go away fast. The only enemy is that we don't like the way reality is now, and therefore we would like it to go away fast. But what we find as practitioners is that nothing ever really goes away until it has taught us what we need to know. If we run 100 miles an hour to the other end of the continent, in order to get away from the obstacle, we find the same problem waiting for us when we arrive. It just keeps returning with new names, forms, and manifest until we learn whatever it has to teach us about where we are separating ourselves from reality. How we are pulling back instead of opening up closing down instead of allowing ourselves to experience fully whatever we encounter without hesitating or retreating into ourselves. Well, that's all clear to me. I get it.
It's like a life lesson will just keep happening to you to you. Uh, learn from it. And it is possible, though, to go your whole life and not learn from it. What do you do when things are unbearable? Almost all of us said something to the effect that we just completely fall apart, forget about our practices altogether, and become totally habitual in our reactions. If we haven't learned the, the lesson um, that life's trying to teach you, and instead you don't experience it and learn from it, um, you'll just fall back into some habitual habit. You get upset or drink or whatever you do, you yell, you holler, you cry, you go tell your friends how horrid everything is, whatever it is, the way you deal with it. If you don't learn from the lesson, then you're just going to keep repeating your habitual behavior. Needless to say, after that we noticed very clearly what we did when we felt attacked, betrayed, or confused, when we find situations unbearable or acceptable, we began to really notice what we did. Did we close down or open up? Did we feel resentful or bitter? Did we soften? Did we become wiser or more stupid? Kind of the first um, step in this whole process of learning from life's lessons and the things that bad stuff that happens to us is learning to almost be an outside observer of yourself and seeing and noticing how you respond to something. A part of a movie last night, it was I was really enjoying it. Uh, I don't remember the name of it. How, how do we go from here or something like that? Um, made me very uncomfortable. Of course, I'm getting up, going to the refrigerator, um, out of milk, got some almond milk and some chocolate and tried to stir it into this milk and sitting there and just sipping that. That's the way I was dealing with the discomfort of the movie. That's a little thing, but it's it still kind of illustrates the point. As a result of our pain, did we know more about what it is to be human or did we know less were we more critical of our world or our or more generous were we penetrated by the arrows or did we turn them into flowers that's a little example of the way I reacted last night but it's uh, You know, the fact that I observe it and know what happened um, makes me a little bit closer to, you know, not doing it the next time. And, and I'm an overweight dude, so I didn't need chocolate milk right before I go to bed. That wasn't, it wasn't about the food. It was about the discomfort and not wanting to deal with it. The, in the show, the father is... Uh, um, done a head of a corporation has done something criminal and his son the chief financial officer is about to go to prison for it 
really rotten stuff and it just so uncomfortable that you know even though it's a movie that that event could be happening to someone traditional teaching on the forces of mara described the nature of obstacles and the nature of how human beings habitually become confused and lose confidence in our basic wisdom mind the morals provide descriptions of some very familiar ways in which we try to avoid what is happening. There are four Mars. The first Mara is called Devatura Mara. It has to do with seeking pleasure. That's my example last night. The second one called Skandha Mara has to do with how we always try to recreate ourselves, try to get some ground back try to be who we think we are that's the old like we've been disrupted we've got out of sorts we've got angry all we want is just to return to the way we were we don't necessarily want to return any better we just want things to be stable and peaceful and not have to go through this mess third mara is called Kel Mara. It has to do how we use our emotions to keep ourselves dumb or asleep. The fourth one, Yama Mara, I maybe can say that one, has to do with the fear of death. The descriptions of these four Maras show us four ways in which we, just like the Buddha, are seemingly attacked, and I would add, and how we reply to them. Devaptura Mara involves seeking pleasure. It works like this. When we feel embarrassed or awkward, when pain presents itself to us in any form, whatever, we run like crazy to become more comfortable. Any obstacle we encounter has the power to completely pull the rug out, to completely pop the bubble of reality that we have come to regard as secure and certain. When we are threatened this way, we can't stand to feel the pain, the edginess, the anxiety, the queasiness in our stomach, the heat of anger rising, the bitter taste of of resentment. Therefore, we try to grasp something pleasant. We react with this tragically human habit of seeking pleasure and trying to avoid pain. I like wine. Sometimes I'm sitting sipping wine because I like wine. A lot of times I'm sipping wine so that I don't feel something. Like, uh, I'd like to do it right now. My taxes are due. I've got a week to go. I've got so much work to finish. Even doing this podcast is a way to avoid uh, the taxes. I promise I'm going to go do them as soon as I finish this. Oh... It's a promise to myself. I know that uh, <laughs> you guys don't care if I finish my taxes or not. But let's say we do this. You know, we go get the wine or the glass of chocolate milk or whatever it is, or a piece of cake. We don't have to consider seeking pleasure as an obstacle. Rather, seeking pleasure is an opportunity to observe what we do in the face of pain. Instead of trying to avoid our uneasiness and off-centeredness 
by running away, we could begin to open our hearts to the human dilemma that causes so much misery in the world. Okay, you know, it would be good if I could learn to sit with my discomfort and deal with things, go do my taxes. Um, But when I don't and I digress uh, to do this podcast or go have the chocolate last night or the wine... I can learn, I can watch myself and bear witness to what I'm doing. And that's part of the learning process. And I can do it with kindness and generosity toward myself. And say, yep, still have some growing to do. Um, I'm not there yet. And then look around the world. We're all in that shape. We're all in the same shape. And we have different, you know, it's like picking our sin and saying it's better than uh, someone else's. And that is, I use that word sin loosely. But look at our own faults and it's always easier to be tolerant of our imperfections uh, than it is someone else. But we're all going through um, stuff in our own way. We could realize that the way to turn this Devaptura era into a flower is to open our hearts and look at how we try to escape. With enormous gentleness and clarity, we could look at how weak we are. In this way, we can discover that what seems to be ugly is in fact the source of wisdom and a way for us to reconnect with our basic wisdom mind. There's a lesson here. There's lessons around us all the time. Every We go through life and, you know, there's probably ten lessons a day. You know, we're lucky if we see one or two of them. Sankhamara. Sankhamara. is how we react when the rug is pulled out from under us. We feel that We have lost everything that's good. We've been thrown out of the nest. We sail through space without a clue as to what's going to happen next. We're in no man's land. We had it all together, working nicely, when suddenly the atomic bomb dropped and shattered our world into a million pieces. We don't know what's going to happen next or even where we are. Then we reconnect with ourselves. We return to the solid ground of our own, of our self-concept as quickly as possible. Nostalgia for Samsara. Our whole world falls apart and we've been given this great opportunity. However, we don't trust our basic wisdom mind enough to let it stay like that. The storms hit, the bombs fallen, We're sitting in the middle of the disaster that's now our life. And we could pause there a moment and get the lesson. But most of us just want to get the hell out of Dodge. Our natural habitual reaction is want to get ourselves back. Even our anger, resentment, fear, or bewilderment. We want to return to what we know, the misery we know, the happiness that we think we have. We want 
so we recreate our solid, immovable personality as if we were Michelangelo chiseling ourselves out of marble. We want to go back to be ourselves and be not only in this outward surrounding, but how we feel internally when something bad happens. Instead of trying to learn from it and uh, continue to grow and become a new and better person. Instead of a tragedy or a melodrama, this Mara is more like a situation comedy. Just as we're on the verge of really understanding something, allowing our heart to truly open, just as we have the opportunity to see clearly, we put on the gradual marks mask with fluffy eyebrows and a big nose. Then we refuse to laugh or let go because we might discover who knows what. Something bad happens, we want to deflect, put on our old face, cover up, and keep trucking. Again, this process does not have to be considered an obstacle or a problem. Even though it feels like an arrow or a sword, if we use it as an opportunity to become aware of how we try to recreate ourselves. This, this one is not as familiar to me. Um, I, I don't like being bored. I like changes and evolving and growing. So my tendency is not to go back. And I've, you know, I've lived in 13 companies that have gone out of business as my industry moved to China. Um, had a few people die around me in my life. Um, had more than a few relationships that I messed up. So I've, I've learned to kind of live with the disaster space. Um, maybe for me that living with the normal is a little harder. I maybe even run to the disaster because that's my comfort zone. Instead of struggling to regain our concept of who we are, we can touch into the mind of simply not knowing, which is the basic wisdom mind. Ah, oh, the powerful phrase, I don't know. The Kesha Mara is characterized by strong emotions. A simple feeling will arise and instead of simply letting it be there, we panic. We begin to weave our thoughts into a storyline which gives rise to bigger emotions. Instead of just sitting in some kind of openness with our uncomfortable feeling, we bring out the bellows and fan away at it. With our thoughts and emotion, we keep it inflamed, hot. We won't let it go. Ah. Reminds me of the drama queen. Um, some people just kind of can't live unless they're in a drama. But we all have a tendency of blowing something up. We may not show it like a drama queen. But we uh, can easily take an emotion and blow it up and expand the story and make it worse and what if and this is going to be terrible and it's the end of the world. Uh, we're doing a lot of that with the COVID at the moment. There's a whole world going through 
this Kelsamara. Not that it isn't serious, but I think we're kind of living from a point of view of fear, um, partisanship, uh, irrational hate, blame. We're doing a whole lot of stuff that has very little to do with trying to deal with it and more living in our fear and blowing up the emotion. When everything falls apart and we feel uncertainty, disappointment, shock, embarrassment, what's left is a mind that is clear, unabashed, and fresh. But we don't see that. Instead, we feel the queasiness and the uncertainty of being in no man's land, in no man's land, and enlarge the feeling and march it down the street with banners that proclaim how bad everything is. That's not COVID. I've never seen it. We knock on every door asking people to sign petitions until there is a whole army of people who agree with us that everything is wrong. I I think we've, with COVID, we've become completely obsessed with it. It's on the news constantly, and it's not like there's new stuff. Um... And it's bad, I'm not saying that. And the racism we're going through in America, and we have been going through in America, is bad. But we've let it um, into this roaring flame of emotion. Um, And we're not letting the moment teach us something. We're just... uh, perfect description walking down the street and waving our banners and kind of going apeshit so what began as enormous open space becomes a forest fire a world war a volcano erupting a tidal wave we use our emotions we use them we use our emotions we use them In their essence, they are simply part of the goodness of being alive. But instead of letting them be, we take them and use them to regain our ground. I'm not sure I understand this completely, but I I do get that we're fanning the emotional flames in the world that we're living in right now. Um... There's a time to do that, and then there's a time to just, like, stop fanning the flames and let's sit down and try to (coughs) make sense of how we're going forward. How are we going to try to do the school thing? Let's put a plan on the table, and then instead of everybody blowing up, just carefully kind of walk through step by step and see you know, how we can make it flexible and adaptable and um, get some from, you know, there's a side that says no one should go back to school and we should all stay in our homes. And there's another side that says, you know, my kids need school. I need to go to work. I need school there. Um, There's, you know, don't really care what side you're on. 
But there's really two sides to this story, and it's a complicated and difficult problem. And by us fanning the emotions and didn't mean to get off on this political bent, but it's this is this uh, chapter is talking about what happens inside of us, but society is just kind of a reflection of what's happening to the individual. We use them to try to make everything secure and predictable and real again, to fool ourselves about what's really true. We could just sit with the emotional energy and let it pass. There's no particular need to spread blame and self-justification. Wow. Wish I could get the world the word out to the world and we instead we throw kerosene on the emotion so it will feel more real. Again, we do not have to consider this process an obstacle or a problem. If we can look at it and see the wildness of the emotion, we can not only begin to befriend and soften toward ourselves, but we can also begin to befriend all human beings and indeed all living beings. We're all going through this. So let, let's say the first choice is we don't fan the emotion and we don't think, don't go ape shit. Let's say we do, which we, as a world right now, we are. Um, then the next step is we can look at this and see what's happening and see how human it is and how normal it is. Um, and we can learn from it individually. As we learn from it, hopefully those around us learn from it. By becoming aware of how we do this silly thing again and again because we don't want to dwell in the uncertainty and the awkwardness and the pain of not knowing, we can begin to develop true compassion for ourselves and everyone else because we see what happens and how we react when things fall apart. That awareness is what turns the sword into a flower. It is how we seemingly it is how what is seemingly ugly and problematic and unwanted actually becomes our teacher. Well, do we have an opportunity to learn right now not only our own personal experiences, but just look at the world at the moment. And the next gift is, and this is where I am, um, learning to have compassion for the people that I think are being insane. Um, I, I have a friend uh, that's a Trump supporter. Last night he sent me this real long conspiracy theory with Fauci and um, sending money to a hospital in China and eight million bucks and how he broke the law, blah, blah, blah. And how it was to, you know, derail Trump. It was a whole big long thing. And I started, you know, my first temptation is to go break the story apart. But then I just wrote him back and I said, I understand how 
you would want to believe the story. And he's heard a little bit of my story stuff before, so I don't think he'll take that as an insult. <coughs> I think maybe all the Maras arise from fear of death, but Yamamara is particularly rooted there. When we talk about a good life from the usual samsaric point of view, what we mean is that we've finally gotten it together. We finally feel that we're a good person. We have good qualities. We're peaceful. We don't get thrown off balance when arrows are shot at us. We're the person who knows how to, to turn an arrow into a flower. We feel so good about ourselves. We are finally tied up all the loose ends. We're happy. We think that's life. Oh, there's times I get where I'm at that point, you know, in between the times I screw up. But I get to thinking I'm a pretty good guy. I'm peaceful, happy, got it all. I've arrived. No. Seeking security or perfection, rejoicing and feeling confirmed and whole, self-contained and comfortable, is some kind of death. It doesn't have any fresh air. There's no room for something to come in and interrupt it all. We are killing the moment by controlling our experience. Doing this is setting ourselves up for failure because sooner or later, we're going to have an experience we can't control. Our house is gonna burn down. Someone we love is going to die. We're gonna find out that we have cancer. A brick is gonna fall out of the sky and hit us on the head. Someone is going to spill tomato juice all over our white suit. So when I get feeling kind of smug and, you know, I got it together stuff, um, that's kind of a false reality. You know, we, we evolve as far as we can and then we die. Um, and on that journey, there's always going to be stuff that happens that we can't handle. Someone's going to spill tomato juice all over my white suit. Uh, that's just reality. That's humanity. That's human condition. That's suffering. That's life on this planet that ends in death. Um, and that should give us compassion toward ourselves and our fellow humans. The essence of life is that it's challenging. Sometimes it is sweet. Sometimes it is bitter. We pass through some really beautiful moments. And then we pass through some times that are just not, not good at all. They're just horrible. That's life. I mean, and somehow, you know, we have to live it and be in it um, and experience it. But you can actually live. 70 years and protect yourself from most of living, avoid living, or you can be immersed in your life and experiencing it. And I, I'd like to believe the latter is the better way to go. Sometimes your body tenses and sometimes it relaxes or opens. Sometimes you have a headache and sometimes you feel 100% healthy. From the awakened perspective, trying to tie up all the loose ends and finally get it together is death. 
because it involves rejecting a lot of your basic experience. When you think you've arrived and got everything together, you're not reality. You're on a journey, you're on a spectrum, and there's a lot of people and a lot of room left between where you are and uh, where humans have gone and could go, and you could go. There's something aggressive about that approach to life, trying to flatten out all the rough spots and imperfections into a nice, smooth ride. Have you ever been around a person that has a real kind of in their voice, they're just making everything really pretty and rosy and uh, flowery, and they talk like that all the time. Uh, they kind of exaggerated pleasantness. Um, that that's kind of you know the the escape she's talking about here. That you live in this uh, la la land where everything's hunky dory. To be fully alive, fully human, and completely awake is to be continually thrown out of the nest. There was a dead bird on my driveway yesterday. Fell out. It didn't even have feathers yet. To live fully is to always in. To live fully is to be always in no man's land, to experience each moment as completely new and fresh. There's some jokes about Alzheimer's about that. Nah, that's bad. To live is to be to live is to be willing to die over and over again. From the awakened point of view, that's life. Death is wanting to hold on to whatever you have and to every and to have every experience confirm you and congratulate you and make you feel completely together. So even though we say the Yama Mara is fear of death, it is actually fear of life. We want to be perfect, but we just keep seeing our imperfections. And there is no room to get away from that. No exit, nowhere to run. That is when the sword turns into a flower. We stick with what we see. We feel what we feel. And from that we begin to connect with our own wisdom mind. We want to be perfect but we just keep seeing our imperfections and there's no room to get away from that. No exit, nowhere to run. Looking at the arrows and swords and how we react to them, we can always return to basic wisdom mind. Rather than trying to get rid of something or buying into a dualistic sense of being attacked, we take the opportunity to see how we close down when we're squeezed, when we're hurt. This is how we open our hearts. It is how we awaken our intelligence and connect with fundamental Buddha nature. So when someone or life throws swords and arrows at you, um, learn from those experiences about yourself and how you respond. Um, and your attitude toward, 
toward those things and what you do to not experience life to avoid life and all its marvelous uh, lessons and opportunities to live well this has been a little longer um the normal but uh, I'm learning from this and I hope some of you are on the journey with me and learning with me too Um, and I appreciate the people that are here even though it's kind of uh, an abstract concept that there's people in Ireland for instance listening to this kind of cool though to think that indirectly and it's kind of weird too that you know some imaginary real person in Ireland is affecting or Canada Great Britain South Africa is affecting me and we're kind of interconnected that's cool thanks for uh, listening and helping me grow and learn. This is the Ancient Texan. Namaste. Yo, this is the ancient Texan, an earthling, hoping we all can learn to live and play well together on this small and delicate planet we call home. May we all honor the sacred and our fellow inhabitants. Namaste.